Kia ora. Welcome to this edition of the Morrisville Baptist Church Podcast. Thank you for connecting with us to discover more about our faith community. Feel free to visit our website at morrislebaptist.com. I hope this message is an encouragement to you. Good evening, everyone. I think we're a smaller group tonight, a few people away. Um, But that doesn't matter at all. It's just good to be able to gather and just to be able to spend time uh, learning and growing about the Lord. And so that can always be a good thing. Would anyone like to open in prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the chance to come together again tonight. And uh, Lord, when we when we gather in your name, we become expectant. And so we do that tonight, Lord, uh, to to dig deeper and to go further with you. And so, Lord, as we sit under Richard's teaching tonight, uh, we ask your hand upon him, and uh, that uh, he would he would speak your words, and that we would hear them on cultivated soil. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Darren. We record it now, so it's, it's really loud. The louder the better. Um, but just for those uh, who haven't been here before, I mean, the whole point of these evenings is just really to grow in confidence in Scripture, in terms of you know to know the big story of the Bible, help us to understand that in terms of context of our relationship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and how uh, to better share that. Uh, as we grow in relationships, so that's the the, uh, the key thing. So we've really just been going through the big picture of the Bible story about the kingdom of God and what that looks like. And so we've come a fair way since May. We've really covered the whole of the Old Testament. And uh, last time we had like a, a question and answer evening, and it's just a recap on all the things that we discussed from the Old Testament. But that was a um, it's been a pretty fast move. So what we will do once we've done the whole big picture, we're going to go back and look at in more detail about particular areas that might be helpful but uh, in the context of having that big picture of what the bible is is about which is really important and so um just to recap where we've been going i guess as we've looked at um the old testament um and we looked at the kingdom from from the garden of eden to the fall what the kingdom looked like and then to see the promise God made to Abraham, to see the partial promises then fulfilled with Moses and the Israelites, and then going to the land of Canaan. And um, then with, you know, they getting themselves into trouble a lot, the Israelites, and then the prophets came along just warning of consequences if they don't fulfill their purpose that, that God has brought them into the land of Canaan to fulfill. And this is all in the context of these really important covenants that we've been talking about. You know, that God in his relationships does everything through covenant, his covenant faithfulness. And so that's just a, a, a slide here that just reminds us that God started sending the prophets to Israel and um, uh, they um, went into exile eventually. And then the southern kingdom of Judah had the same problem. It was just a few years later, they ended up in exile too. But in God's covenant faithfulness, he preserved them. He brought them back into the land of Israel, but he kept sending prophets, and they were giving a hints of God's faithfulness and what that might look like in future. And in the present, they're going to experience judgment because of their behavior, but God gave them hope 
because of their covenant faithfulness, that that wasn't the end and that God would do a restoration because of his, his promises to Abraham, um, David, and, and, and the like. And so uh, they end up, and so we end up at the end of the New Testament. We end up with um, the last books. Haggai, Darren um, taught us about that a couple of years ago, or less, um, Zechariah and Malachi. And can you remember the last verse of the Old Testament, what the last word of the Old Testament is? No. <laughs> you, that'd be your response though. Okay. It wasn't a blessing. What's the opposite of blessing? A curse. So the end of the Old Testament ends on a note of a curse, which is not that particularly good, is it? Um, and but God's prophets were just promising for that that the kingdom of God was looking at this time that, that God's people were, was going to be Israel with the inclusion of the nations because that's what God promised Abraham I'm going to bless you your descendants and all nations will be blessed through you and so God's kingdom was going to ex expand this is what the prophets were starting to, to um, uh, prophesy there's going to be a new temple and a, and a new creation and so they didn't fully understand or grasp all of these things but these were the prophets were talking about a new heavens a new earth and um, there would indeed be a new temple as Jesus would, would start to reveal that. And uh, God's, God's prophesied um, kingdom would be that there would be a new covenant under Jeremiah and a new king which David in his covenant, God made a covenant with David, prophesied about. And so that uh, God's people would be expanding in the future to be Israel of the nations. The place wouldn't just be restricted to one area, but it was going to be... Um, a new temple and that would ultimately be, be us and God's rule and blessing would be a new covenant and a new king and so there was um, real expectation on that and so they had a, a real sense of hope this works and so um, part of that the message of hope for the people was um, Jeremiah talked about a um, I think we touched on these last time about a, a, a new exodus of the people and there was a hope there and there would be a new Passover lamb, in effect, as Isaiah talked about the suffering servant. And so uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah brought this hope in the midst of pen impending judgment. And there's a message of hope too, just remembering back to Abraham, that, that really key promise God made to Abraham, that all people be blessed through you. And that would um, spread out uh, to making them be a light for the Gentiles, and that salvation of God would go to the ends of the earth. And that was always God's plan. So there's hope in terms of people being included in that. And there was a, a place too. And Ezekiel spoke about a, a new temple. And Isaiah spoke about the new heavens and the earth. So they, these prophecies were in there, but they were just uh, weren't there in terms of any detail. But there was a hope there that God would do something in the future to make these things happen. And ultimately there was that key, that new covenant that God would make. And... Um, break the pattern of the likes of judges where God entered a covenant with them to be their people and they would be his people, he would be their God and they kept on sinning and then asking God would punish them they'd ask for forgiveness and repent um, get back okay again back on the side of God and then as soon as everything was okay what did they do? they went back to their old ways again and that was it and so a new king too was one of the hope 
God's rule and blessing would come in his kingdom. And so um, we have that for the Old Testament. Some of you um, might remember that list that we, we, we talked about. Um, so if you want them. We talked about the, the difference between the Hebrew Bible and the our Bible and the Old Testament. And um, we had, um, if anyone wants any copies of those, I'll just hand a, a few out. And you'll notice some differences between the, um, the, the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible and our one too. I'll just need a few more of those. Uh, you'll see that. But uh, effectively God is saying, I just want to see them, is um, these are all the books of the Old Testament that uh, we're familiar with. And then God gives these messages of hope. What happens next at the end of Malachi, after Malachi? 400 years of silence. Yes, that's right, Catherine. Yeah. God's not saying anything. And so there's, there's, there's quiet. And um, that doesn't mean that God wasn't doing anything. Had, had God, God gone on holiday? That's a, no. he, was, he was there. But um, yeah, a, a question is, how, how, how did all these books, how do we know which books went into the Old Testament and which didn't? What was the kind of criteria? That all these books have in common that others that were left out didn't they have uh, so yeah what were the characteristics that these books got included into the into the hebrew bible or the old testament as we call it what made these in and the others get left out any thoughts There was consensus, consensus about a continuity. They, they kind of all um, linked in with each other in some way, and they didn't contradict each other. And they were just focused on on God rather than side things. And I'm not sure what the side things were, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. Any other thoughts? A lot of the, a lot of these it was th thus says the Lord, or the Lord was speaking. So right through all of these books, God was speaking. It's the only one book in there that we didn't have God um, speaking directly. It would have been Esther in there. But uh, God is speaking, and that's the key reason that all these books are part of the, um, the Hebrew Bible, is because God was speaking at that time to the people through various leaders. And you'll see on that list, what we call as historical books is not always helpful, because in Hebrew, they were called the former prophets, as we discussed a few weeks ago. And God was speaking through those. And so throughout this, this time, it was, this was God's word coming through. And so in all of these books, God is speaking. And, and, and as, you, as Catherine said, um, uh, there were key teachings in here that are orthodox. And uh, also for the prophets, some of them were making short-term predictions, which came true. And um, obviously that gave them confidence that the other things that they were predicting them, that, that God had shown them would, would happen at a later date. And so that's why we have these books in the, um, in the Bible we have today, because God is speaking. Like, 
God said this, God, God says to you now in all of those, God spoke to someone. And so there's silence. And so, what, uh, and so after Malachi, I guess just going quickly back, we have obviously had the, the period where Judah was kicked out of, of the land by the Babylonians. You remember that? We kind of talked about that with King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Babylonian Empire was, was overtaken by the Persian Empire and King Cyrus, who allowed some of the Israelites to go back. Have you all heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah. yeah. Well, he quickly takes over these empires in the space of eight short years. Um, and um, then he dies suddenly. And then some of his generals take over his empire, the Ptolemaic Greek Egyptians in that period, and then there were some uh, Greek Syrians in that period there as well. So they kind of rule over the land of Israel over that, that, those periods. And God isn't saying anything, and the people were in the land. And then um, things get really bad at the, under the Syrian period, under 168 BC, when the temple is desecrated uh, by Ant Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who sets himself up as God and um, sacrifices a pig there and desecrates the temple and has temple prostitutes in, the, in there. And after that, that sparks a revolt among some of the Jewish people. And I don't know if you've heard of the book of Maccabees. There's two books. So if you go to a Catholic Bible, they actually include some of these in there. And the reason that we don't include them in our Bible is that. God's, that's right. God's not saying anything. So they may be helpful, but because God, God wasn't speaking directly in those situations, we don't include them. And so we have a, uh, um, some, some um, Jewish people who fight and rebel under um, um, a man called Matthias and his sons, uh, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, they helped to defeat the um, Syrians, the Seleucids that they're called. And they have a period of independence. And then the Romans turn up and take over. And so that ends up with um, them making Herod the king, a client king. So the time of the New Testament, he is the king when Jesus is born. And so we haven't had any scripture over this since the Persian period when Malachi was uh, in that about 430 BC. So God hasn't spoken in a direct sense for 400 years. That'd be kind of tough, wouldn't it? Imagine 400 years ago. What's happening in New Zealand 400 years ago? Nothing as far as the white people are concerned. Maori were here, but that would be it. Yeah, and so that would have been pretty tough, wouldn't it? And and so, um, is this information helpful? Some people might say, well, it doesn't really do anything. It's not critical. It doesn't, it doesn't affect our salvation, does it? But it's really helpful in understanding these things. So that helps us understand what was going on at the time of Jesus and the pressures that people were facing. You remember we talked about the first episode about Lord of the Rings? And if you were there, and we talked about like the, the three volumes. And um, with the Bible, we sometimes start right in the New Testament somewhere. And we wouldn't do that of any other kind of trilogy, would we? We'd always go back to the beginning to get the story. 
And so if you started off with Return of the King, which is volume three, you might think um, um, Aragorn was a great, great king right there at the end, but you would never appreciate that no one trusted him. And he was like a little ranger, unknown ranger, right at the beginning, and people didn't trust him. You would have despised Gollum right at the end, in that last volume. But if you understood what had happened to him and where he'd come from, particularly in volume one, you might have a different view and a bit more sympathy with him. And so um, understanding the whole story actually helps us to get a picture. And so you look at Gollum in a different light, knowing the whole story than simply looking at him right at the end. And the same with the, the, the story. So as Jesus comes in into um, uh, this, this situation, the Sadducees, and we've heard of the Sadducees, haven't we? Yeah, and Pharisees? They all appear in this period of, of, of independence. And do you know what they're all fighting for? Power. Power. Yeah, so they're, they're fighting for power, but they say we want to, it's my line ought to be the high priest. My line ought to be sort of the, you know, the more the kingly line, not as a natural king, but we should have the, um, the real power, political power. And so these parties are formed during this time. And so trying to put their, put their ways, and they've got all this um, foreign culture coming in. You know, uh, we, you know, we think of today, you go to Hollywood, there's a lot of uh, American culture there, and um, some of it's good, some of it's not so good, is it? You think some of the stuff that comes out of there. And so some of these books like the Pharisees are saying, hey, we don't want all this trashy stuff coming over. They're corrupting our people. You know, we're just bad morals. And obviously with the likes of the, of the Romans and the Greeks coming in there, you know, they would go in the gymnasium and um, they would um, do all their exercises naked. And they would have lots of um, moral parties uh, in their temples. Um, and things, and so it was. Um, it was. This was a tough environment. I'm just saying. I thought they were chased away by the chased away. Who was chased away? Um, the society that you're talking about. I thought they'd been exiled by the by the area you're talking about. Which the people? Uh, you talking about the Jewish people? Yes, in society naked, etc. I thought they'd been exiled. No, that was part of the culture in terms of, uh, of doing that. They go into the gymnasiums and stuff and they could do that. Yeah. And the Jewish, the Jewish leaders say, hey, we don't want that. We want to stay holy, yeah. you know, and we want to get rid of this stuff. And there's a tension with others saying, hey, let's embrace the, uh, the Greek culture that's coming through, all the things that come with it. And just as we think of all the things that come out, sometimes, you know, picking on America, but a lot of our culture is shaped by America. Let's embrace the, all of those things. You know, um, no matter if it's good, good or bad. And so some people say, hey, that's really bad. You know, some of the movies coming out and all kinds of things are coming out there. And so that's kind of the background as you come into the New Testament. People are fed up being ruled by others, being told what to do. And so it's kind of hard. And so Herod gets favor with the Romans. Basically, Herod was able to uh, get favor with everyone. You know, and, but you could never trust him, I think. Um, one of the Roman Caesars said that uh, um, the you you know you wouldn't even um, the only thing that would be safe in the Herod's kingdom is a pig, I think it was, which they didn't eat because he was pretty ruthless 
and all, all that he did. And so this is a tough time. So everyone's wanting a, a, a Jesus to come, not Jesus, the Messiah to come. And it's kind of tough because nothing's happening. And so into that environment of life is tough, taxes are high, um, the rich, again, they're getting richer, and the poor are just being facing really tough. Is that God hasn't spoken for 400 years. How would you feel? Heavy taxes, difficult life, living from day to day. Eh? Yeah, I'm sure the people are doing that. Where is God? God, you promised to turn up. Where are you? Absolutely, they were. And so you read that at the beginning of Exodus, and they cry out to God, don't they? So what do you imagine the people are doing right now? Crying out to God. Crying out to God. They want someone. They want God to do something. And so that's the kind of environment they were, in one sense, in. Life was hard, and just as the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites in Egypt, in their own land now, they were being oppressed by the Romans and um, the various other groups around them. So life is tough, and God hasn't shown up. And so this is the period. So it's a bit hard. I keep standing under these speakers. But this is the period here where we get the four Gospels. We're all familiar with the four Gospels. One way to think about them, I've shown up in here when we did the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, is that uh, four Gospels, they're not all the same, they have different emphasis on them, and um, Mark emphasises that Jesus comes as the Son of Man. Luke emphasises Jesus is the Saviour of the world. Matthew emphasises Jesus as the King of the Jews, as we're going through with the Gospel of Matthew now. And John will emphasise that Jesus is the Son of God. The first three Gospels, they're called synoptic. It's just up there on, on their synoptic, which means they're seen together or viewed together because they're very similar. Have you noticed the Gospel of John is a bit different? Any differences you, you kind of notice when you read John compared to the other Gospels? What's that? The, yeah, well, they're all, they're all doing that, but he's saying Jesus is the, Jesus the son, son of God. Yeah. That's right, Deborah. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. But they're all emphasizing. It doesn't mean that they don't have commonalities and, um, um, and other themes in them. It's one way of, of just uh, hoping to see them, is that they're trying to give a, a bigger portrait of who Jesus is. And so in one sense, you know, Mark tells us, the things that Jesus did. Have you ever read Mark? It's a really action-packed gospel. One of the favorite words in there is immediately, immediately Jesus did this or he moved on to there and did that. And um, Luke and Matthew tell us more about what Jesus said. And John actually tells us a bit more who Jesus is in kinds of emphasis. And so they're doing different things to help us to so this is something God has started something new. And so it's kind of helping us to, um, uh, to, to grasp who Jesus is. 
And so we kind of see that in all of the Gospels, Matthew starts in the genealogy of Jesus, linking him back as uh, the prophesied Messiah, linked to the, um, the, um, the promises of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and of a king. And so Matthew picks up on that. Mark, through the Gospel of Mark, starts with, um, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you, prepare your way. Who's that? Who becomes the messenger? And this time, John, that's right. A voice of calling one in the wilderness. And that comes from Isaiah. Uh, 700 years earlier. And then he goes on to proclaim the good news, which is the gospel. The time has come for the kingdom of God has come near. And so this whole journey from the creation of the, of the kingdom of God, starting off perfectly. And we talked about it, how it gone wrong. And it was, um, in the second talk and now the kingdom of God has come near or was in your midst in other way and the kingdom in the midst is, is the king is with them at that time right in their midst so Mark is doing that and um, Luke we I think we just touched on that last last time about again these covenant promises doesn't mention anything about the covenant with Moses but when they're grateful for God, um, um, with John the Baptist coming and Jesus coming, those events, um, uh, Zechariah, John's dad, I think says this, and we get this, and also um, from Mary, being merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. So God's been silent for 400 years. He hasn't forgotten his promises, but it's the promises to Abraham. They're the covenant promises are unconditional, aren't they? And so, John. John goes a bit different here, doesn't he? He links Jesus with creation. And way back in when we looked at um, um, uh, Genesis, in the, uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and talked about the Spirit hovering over the waters and God spoke. And here is the word John is linking to. So the one there in Genesis, here John's identifying as the word. And so we see right at the start of all these Gospels, there's that link back to the Old Testament, which is really important now for you to, to grasp why we need a saviour, is to have those things. And so, just in the big picture sense, so Jesus starts to come now to fulfil many of those promises in his first coming. examples of that. Israelites in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. And so Jesus after his baptism is in the, in the desert for 40 days, isn't he? And gets tested. And unlike the first Adam who got tested, Jesus passed. We get 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's an interesting one. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Does that say anything to you? Yeah, he's drawing people together, yeah. yeah. He kind of uses I am is the name of, of God. 
and um, the vine. The vine was a picture of Israel. God was the vine dresser. Israel was the vine in the vineyard. And um, do you know where Jesus might have been when he said this? I am the vine. way to the Mount of Olives, but it's funny that when Jesus is, is, is saying something, it's usually on a day that's a Jewish festival that God gave them, or it's at a significant place. And Jesus just had the Last Supper, probably going to the Mount of Olives, which means they've got to go past the temple. And we know from the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, that at the front of the temple was a great golden vine at the entrance of the temple doors. And it's probably likely that Jesus would be near there where they knew exactly what he was talking to about when he said, I am the vine. Um, and uh, there's this great vine right on the temple doors. And so that's one of the reasons that the, um, the, some of the local people got angry with Jesus because of the kind of things he was drawing attention to himself that was in their history. When he said, I'm the living water, that was during a Jewish festival when they poured water on the altar to thank God for helping us keeping them during the time in the wilderness. When he says, I'm the light of the world, they were having a light festival going on in Jerusalem just at that time. And what does Jesus say on the last day of the feast? I am the light of the world. It's a big call, isn't it? So some of the leaders got a bit, a bit upset. Here's this man from Nazareth, from Morrinsville, maybe, making these big claims. And so some of the people, especially the leaders, got upset because that could impact on their livelihoods. You know, the, uh, some of the leaders in the temple were really rich. And if the Romans got rid of them, they'd lose their power and their wealth. And so they uh, had a, essentially a monopoly because they collected taxes every time a Jewish person went into the temple. The uh, Jewish leaders would collect taxes. So they were very wealthy. We know that from um, some of the archaeological stuff. And so Jesus was making all these connections between the Old Testament that God says, you are my vineyard. And Jesus starts pointing these things to him. He's a real picture of what the Jewish people ought to have been looked like. Looked like. Um, and then he comes, the son of David. Remember the other week? Who did we say the son of David was? Can you remember? Peace. Yeah, and what's another name for peace? Shalom. And another name? Can you remember? The Shalom. Who was the king? Yeah, King Solomon. That's right, Sandy. So the son of David was actually the son, was King Solomon. He was the son of peace. And so Jesus came as a king of peace this first time round. And so he would do his miracles, but also point to him being the son of God. So he came to bring peace the first time. And so, um, but he also, um, in a spiritual sense, he brought victory, didn't he? Victory on the cross. 
as the son of David. And so we read that in Colossians. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's what it set us free in a spiritual sense, what Jesus did on the cross. And that's part of God's rule and blessing and setting us free to be able to follow him. And part of that too is um, his blessing is to give us eternal life. And that starts, when does eternal life start? That's right. Because what does that mean when we um, accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour? We've died. We do. And so because we have a, do we have a relationship with him then? And that, that's right. So eternal life is to be in relationship with God. And that starts when we, we accept him um, and uh, choose to follow him. And so with them, when we do that, we start to live under God's rule and blessing. When we say, hey, I want to repent, give up my old life and start living for you. And so we start to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. When we start doing the things Jesus has called us to and to live with him. And so, one of the great amazing things that we saw weeks ago that Abraham walked through those animals that he cut up. And um, he, he didn't walk through them, but he cut the animals up and all the blood was down there in the little channel. And he goes into um, a thick darkness came over him. And it's actually the fire pot or the Holy Spirit that goes through that sacrifice for those animals that are cut up. And Abraham never goes through it. And God was saying that one day I'll pay that price for you, Abraham. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant meant that if you break the covenant, with those animals being cut up, that's what should happen to you if you break the covenant. And so only God goes through that, those animals um, to form that covenant. And so we have the problem, don't we, with um, anger uh, of, of God towards us when we rebel against him. The Jewish people experience that. It's a bit hard, isn't it? Do you find it hard to understand about the anger of God? That's okay, yeah, that's okay, Deborah. It's just um, asking things. But um, God's anger, we, 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 we've come to God's love, aren't we? We understand that. It's much harder to understand God being angry for some people. That's right, that was never his plan in the beginning. And so, what, what does anger, God's anger to do, do to our, our relationship with him? It separates us. That's right. And so, um, that, that broke our relationship with God, didn't it, at the beginning? And so, Jesus, before he came to earth, was in perfect relationship with God, with the Father, as part of the Trinity. And so Jesus comes, and what happens? What does Jesus do? He sacrifices, and so there's a divine exchange. And so God's anger 
goes on Jesus and then we enter that relationship with God. And that's part of that key news about these new covenant blessings. So the covenant that, Abraham, uh, that uh, Jeremiah foretold, we start seeing Jesus doing that. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us then to live that out. And so these new covenant blessings of forgiveness and relationship are really key. And not just, it doesn't just go out for um, um, the Jewish people, but this was a blessing to the whole world, which is really cool. Now, I guess it's pretty easy for us just to kind of take these things for granted. But back in, the, in that time, when we understand the Bible, that um, that was pretty hard for the people to take at the time. And even some people who saw, um, who realized that Jesus had raised them, they still doubted. We read that at the end of Matthew. But this is the, um, the thing that God does to actually change everything in our relationship with him. And um, pretty amazing, it's 1 Peter 3.18, for God, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And uh, forgiveness is to know God. I've just left that on at the end, I should have deleted that bit. Um, and so that's, that's the heart of the new covenant. That's pretty good news, isn't it, that God has done that. Might just, um, just conscious of time, might just read it. Do you want to read a little bit of scripture? Just, just read these verses. I love these ones from, um, from Luke. Is there any volunteers to read from Luke 167 to 79? Who would like to read? Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty saviour from the royal line of his servant David. Just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago, now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors and remembered and by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so that we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And do Sandy, just want to read from 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the paths of peace. So this was uh, from um, John the Baptist's uh, father, Zechariah. So these, um, rather than just doing a, a table the time, any thoughts on um, what these verses imply about the situation before Christ came? Those sort of questionnaires too. Is it, what was it like for them at this time when um, 
the angel visits to Zechariah. What's, what, what's the situation like there in Israel before the Messiah came? talks in the salvation from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us so life's not too good though is it Do you think that would have been reasonable, given they've been, how long they've been waiting? 400 years. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in this, they clearly understood that um, their enemies were the Romans. And somewhere in the New Testament, it, it talks about us not uh, fighting against flesh and blood. So like we still need to learn the same lesson. Our real enemies are not the people around us. Yes, that's right. <coughs> Yeah, and and so yeah, life would have been really, really tough for them. They've been just, where is God? And people ask that question today, don't they? In all the strife and life's difficulties, you know, if God was a loving God, why isn't He helping us? Has He abandoned us? Has God gone to sleep? Is God dead? Is He real? Absolutely, that's right. And so, yeah, so it's tough. So it's really tough on the people, and they're crying out to God. And so, uh, we just need to remember that when Jesus comes, is that there was that immense pressure for God to do something and their understanding. What do we learn about salvation from that that passage? He who has raised up a horn of salvation. Who's done the raising? God. So we learn about salvation here. That God's doing it. And why? He's merciful. And his covenant, that's right. And so that's really important to remember that uh, this is God's business of salvation, of rescuing us. We can't do that ourselves. And as, as Catherine was saying too, there's a, there's a big spiritual element in this, um, which we'll look at another time. Um, and so how should we respond? How should we respond to salvation? How are they responding here in this? How is Zechariah responding? Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. Yeah. So life was hard, really difficult, intense situations going on there. Um, and 
God's in the business of is his power, is his strength. He's fulfilling his covenant promises. And so here the people respond in praise. That's the first step, isn't it? Is to respond in praise and thankfulness. Does that apply today? And so, today's situation, you know, in some parts of the world, there are different names, different places, some different cultures going on. Underlying issues are the same, isn't it? Struggle, pain, separation, hurt, um, oppression, impatience, crying out. Hasn't those sort of things haven't changed, although the cultures and our cultures may have changed. And so, worshipping this morning, we're worshipping the same God, aren't we? As they were this morning, as um, they were in the time of Zechariah. And so, this is a great gift that God has given us. And some of those, this is a big piece of the jigsaw puzzle in God's plans and purposes. And so, we've been going through from, I said, Genesis from the beginning, where everything was made perfect to the fall. And God promising he's got to do something to restore his kingdom. And you see it in bits and pieces. Because that's really um, interesting. Uh, I think it's written in Hebrews. Get someone to um, read this for me. So this will be the Hebrews. And where was it? I remember the chapter one. Does someone just want to read... Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 uh, to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many, time, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son... The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Thanks, Elaine. And so the, the underlying um, Greek here was that in the... Um, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times, in various ways, means in bits and pieces. He spoke a bit to this prophet, Isaiah, another bit to Jeremiah, another bit to Micah, and another bit to all the other prophets. And so putting the whole picture together, with the jigsaw, we started to see that Jesus here is the Son of God and the Son of Man, who's only He can deal with this issue of making us right with God, perfectly. He, when um, God, when uh, Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and about to sacrifice Isaac, and God says, no, I'll provide a ram. There's a ram there with a crown of thorns almost on his head. After a three-day journey into the desert, and Isaac carried what up to the mountain? 
Well, is it carried up? No. Wood. So Isaac carried some wood up Mount Moriah. And there's a crown of thorns going up there. And it says in, in, in that place where the ram was sacrificed, it said that the Lord will, in the future tense, the Lord will provide. And Mount Moriah is where we believe Jerusalem is, the city of Jerusalem. Yes, on the mountain of Moriah. And so it's quite amazing that here we see that promise God made to Abraham. And when we think of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, we think about finances or, or help. Actually, I think it was actually looking forward to the day that Jesus will take the place of Isaac and that ram, because a ram can't cover our sins. The blood of animals and goats can't give us a clean conscience. Only the blood of, of a son. And so it's an amazing picture of all these jigsaw pieces that have been represented in the Old Testament suddenly get revealed when they come together in Jesus. And so only now does it start to make sense of what God is doing and that his plan that he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, descendants, and through you all nations will be blessed. To David there will be a king that comes after you, an everlasting kingdom. Who could that be? And so um, that's the wonder, is that a lot of these things are hard to see themselves. And particularly when we, it's hard for us to see things when we're in pain and struggling, isn't it? When life is hard, we're on the treadmill and we're running around, it's kind of hard to see these things. It would have been really hard for these people, you know, paying high taxes, oppressed, working long hours, just to you know, get get by from day to day. And some, some of them were, you know, they didn't necessarily they only had enough money to buy bread for that day usually. They need to, hopefully tomorrow, they get enough money to buy the bread for tomorrow, for a lot of them. So um, hard for them to sometimes think about these bigger pictures. And um, it's hard. And so, as we've been going through these kind, kind of these summary kingdom of God pictures you know as Jesus comes he comes to show us what Israel should have been like as a nation they were supposed to be a light to the world light to the nations Jesus actually comes to show what that would have been like as in call it the, you know, the true Israel I wouldn't, wouldn't call it the new Israel I call it the true Israel he came to show what that was like and now the God's place is a tabernacle is um, the true temple is actually in us because only when Jesus could clean us up could the Holy Spirit live in us because we you know we use soap we can clean the outside of us with soap can't we how do we clean up the sin in the inside of us we can't use soap can we so the sins and things that are dirty make us dirty on the inside only the blood of Jesus could do that to allow the Spirit uh, to live in us so now God's place is no longer in Jerusalem. But we are the temple through Jesus. And God's rule and blessing is a true king, his resurrection life. And so when we follow Jesus, we bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that was Jesus' prayer for his disciples, to do that. When you follow me, live out my life, then you're showing what the kingdom is like in the present. 
And so he knows we won't be able to do that easily. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit. We'll probably pick up that next time. Just um, one other theme in all of this, about the bits and pieces thing as well. And I said we've been in a big theme about covenants uh, this whole time that we've been looking through this. Is, um, I said one of the ways I like to look at this would have been a Jewish way that he came 2,000 years ago. Jesus got engaged to his bride, to his people. And so I said in the Old Testament, you see a picture of, of God as husband in some places, and then he calls them my children. And um, in one sense, John the Baptist in, in John 3 said the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice, and that joy is mine, is now complete. And so for a lot of the, the, the Jewish places of living, if you went right in, in the cities, is simply that um, if a son got married or got engaged to a bride, they wouldn't just simply move in together straight away. They needed to build somewhere to live. And so what they had in their housing complex is that they have a courtyard. There's just two different pictures just to show you what that would have been like. But if someone got engaged, the bride would go and live with her husband's family. But it couldn't go there straight away. And so what they would do, they would build on an additional room into that complex of houses. And so when the, the bridegroom-to-be, his, his father would probably build that extension onto the house. We're all going to know DIY these days. Is that when that was ready, then they would have the wedding. But when they got engaged, like a betrothal in the old days, betrothal, you heard of the word betrothal? It was the same as being married, effectively, except you didn't uh, consummate the marriage. And so Jesus, in the, sorry, in its own one, so that's what they would wait. And so the, um, the bride would wait, wait for that call, that the house is ready, and come and live with the bridegroom and his family. And so when it says that um, in John 14, Jesus says, don't be troubled. You know, I'll, um, I'm, I'm going away to prepare a house for you. And I'm going to come back when it's ready. So that the people in this time, what do you think that would have meant? Waiting for him to come back to say, the place is ready, we're going to consummate the marriage now. And so Jesus came the first time in one sense to get engaged, to establish the covenant in his blood. Because covenants are the closest form of relationships that God uses uh, to uh, interact with his people. And so that's just a beautiful picture, because it says in Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb is ready. What's the bride been doing? Preparing. She's been preparing too, isn't she? And so that's kind of the picture. Jesus has come to get engaged in one sense, and he's coming back to fulfill that. And that's one of the beautiful pictures that we have um, in, in, in the Bible of God's plans that Jesus came the first time and he's coming again. And the most prophesied event in the, in, in the Bible is what? The second coming. That's right, the second coming of Jesus. And so if all these other prophecies that we've just touched over lightly have been happening, 
Do you think this last one will happen too? Yes. Because God has shown his, his, of his faithfulness. And so that's just really important when we, we grapple with some of these things, is we get the big picture right. A king is coming back for his bride. And so he's already said, we're betrothed. And I said, in those days, betrothal was just like being married, except you hadn't consummated it. But uh, we were much, much more loose on that, on that today in our culture. So rock solid. Now, I don't know if um, we're nearly at 7.30. Now, we might do this next time. But I, I said that we'll, at the end of these sessions, we'll just talk about an issue or something like that. might just help. Do you want to have an extra few minutes, or do you want to finish now at 7.30? Hey? Do you want just a few minutes more? Yeah. Okay. So I guess just, just with our Bibles, I guess one thing, you know, you know the common question, how do, we, how do we know this Bible is accurate? You get that question? How do you, do you, do you find it hard to answer that one, or do you find it quite okay to answer that question? There's certainly a lot, a lot of um, evidence around that we've dug up to affirm, affirm the Bible. Oh, who, who's the author of this? God. God. And so we know there's a divine author. But did he do it all by himself? Did God write the words down? No. So he worked through people, didn't he? Different personalities. You know? And uh, you know, if you read through some of them, you know, some of the prophets got frustrated with God. I, I'm fed up with writing this down. No one listens to me. And so you see some of the personalities coming out. Their frustrations coming out too, don't you? If you, if you come across that. And but, so he used different personalities. And so their original copies that they wrote, wrote down is what we call was inspired. Okay? So the original ones when they first wrote down is what we call just being inspired. And now uh, what we have is that the people copied them, didn't they? They didn't have a printing press in those days. So how did people copy? By hand. And not when they started writing, when they wanted to write down. So originally they had an oral tradition. So they started writing down. And so we had something that's just called, complicated word, but it's doesn't really, just critical text, which means we've got about 5,600 manuscripts from the New Testament today, from all over the Mediterranean world. And most of them all agree but there are some differences on there. And so if you read the story in John chapter 8 about the woman um, who's caught in adultery, that's not in some of the earliest manuscripts. And so there's a little bit of doubt. Was that original story written by one of the apostles or was that a later story added? Because Jesus told lots of stories. John says that too. 
And so there's not so much confidence about whether that, that story about the woman in adultery was in the original manuscript or not. And so it highlights that sometimes in our Bible. Um, but by and large, we know that 98% of the Bible is accurate because of the weight of different copies we have of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, written in different places by different people to affirm its accuracy. The question whether it's true or not is a different thing, the question of truth, but the question of copying and accuracy. We have a high degree of confidence today that what we have in here written down is really, really close to what the original authors wrote those thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago. You don't have that confidence for any other piece of written um, uh, documents from that time. And just today, we just get different people just doing different translations. So we get, you heard, what translations of the Bible have you heard of? Just throw some out. Okay. NIV. King James, ESV, Passion Bible. Sorry, it's a whole lot. There's a whole lot, and so do you think they're all making these up? These different translations. Well, yeah, they're all they're all using some original source documents to do that, and. Um, we get our English translations from the original, some of the original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic manuscripts. And so different groups translate them in different ways. So we talked about the word nails the other week. Nails can mean these nails, or it can mean sort of the hammering nails, can't it? Same for words in Greek and um, Aramaic. And um, so we there, so all the mainstream um, Bible uh, translations we have are normally put together by a, 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 um, a committee of, of experts who work together to try and get an accurate translation in English depending on what their aims are. And I'll just come back to that in a minute. And so, um, yeah, because some of the challenges is no words are alike. Um, and so, it's kind of different when you have to translate the word from Hebrew into English. Watch words you choose. And there's a whole range of them. And so different translators decide to do that in a different way. And so, you know, they're all using the same original text. If you know the languages, it's not so bad. And I guess um, Darren's been learning Hebrew and um, just be learning some of that, some of the challenges in, in translating. And so, um, Again, here, I might have shown this a while ago. Just a US woman was touring in Europe who cabled her husband, have found a wonderful bracelet priced $75,000. Bargain, don't you think? <laughs> Ladies, may I buy it? Received reply, no price too high. How would you interpret that? Go for it. Go for it? There's no comma in there, is there? No. Yeah. So, is there, is there, do you know if there's, if there's grammar in Hebrew and Greek? Do they have commas? No, I don't think they do. No. So, that kind of gets it really hard, doesn't it? So, in that English, we do. And so, it turned out that this unfortunate cable operator 
he missed out the comma. You understand it now? Crystal clear, isn't it? The first one was ambiguous. No price too high for you, my darling. <laughs> and, and so that's the challenge we have with some of these translations, is there's no quotation marks or, or um, punctuation that we have. And so that challenges translators. So it's not that we're just making up a whole range of different translations. And it's, um, here's just an example here as well. In the Greek, Matthew 17, 18, and rebuked it, the Jesus, and came out from him the demon, and was healed the boy from the hour that. All make sense? Yeah? You got that one? That's kind of hard, isn't it? Well, that's how you'd read some of the original Greek in there, in the way that they've um, written it down. And so, of course, for our English punctuation here, here's three different translations here, NSAB, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. NIV, Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. New Living Translation, then Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy, and it left him. And from that moment, the boy was well. All three legitimate translations, the meanings are the same, but the words have just been put together, just in a different, different way. And that's kind of the challenge that translators have. And so here, just to give you an idea, we have some translations, like King James, North American Standard, English Standard Version. Would you say that they're easier to read or harder to read than some other versions? Don't know, if you haven't read them. Do you find the language in that easy? Some people might do, some people. All quiet. So, the further right you go, the further it is to, easier it is to read. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so, the people at this end, what they're typically doing is trying to find the equivalent English word for the Hebrew or Greek word. And they want to be as close to the original text as, as possible when they're translating it. And so sometimes that can make it a little harder to read. So they're wanting to be true to the text. You see here, the NIV is right here in the middle, halfway ground. They're more interested in communicating the meaning. So they won't go word for word. They'll just say, hey, this is what we think it means. And so they'll, they'll make a judgment call on, on the words that they'll translate. And so that's why it's in the middle of the road, because it's easier to read, and because they're more interested in getting the meaning across in English than actually translating word for word. And you come down to the message is quite different, isn't it? The New Living Translation, uh, NLT down there, they're more paraphrases, where they've, they've understood what it means in Hebrew or Greek, and then they come up with their own, uh, we'll call it a paraphrase, it's their own summary of what those sentences said. And so again, there's, there's nothing wrong with those things. We just need to understand that um, in, in this, if you're looking at different versions. Now, if you're doing a study, you might want to look across a range of those Bibles um, to, to get a good flavor of what a word or what a sentence means. Um, if, if, if you want to read the Psalms, sometimes the New Living Translation 
is helpful because it focuses more on on emotions. And because uh, the Psalms have a lot of emotions in them, don't they? You know, people crying out to God. And so that kind of helps in that. But if you're wanting to try and stick to some of the, the technical terms of what these words meant, then you want to be going down to the left side with King James, New King James, NSAB, ESV. So there's nothing wrong with these ones. It's just understanding where the differences are. And it doesn't mean that our Bible are corrupted or, 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 or full of mistakes. It's just that we're, we're, we're translating them from um, another, another languages. And I said at one end it's very formal, and the other end it's functional because we want to try and draw across the meaning. Does that kind of make sense? Um, so when I go back to Old Testament, I'm thinking Psalm 1. Mm. And I could relate to that text, the word-for-word word text, the beginning. Like, I could understand that straight away, like, literally. And I think just also learning to do how our language is sort of, mm. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense yeah. to us. Yeah. I mean, even Psalm 1. But um, when it came to English, struggled um, just understanding the concept of reading the Bible in English. So it was just hard, like, a switch in mind, but when I read it in Psalm 1, like I carry around the Māori Bible, I can actually read and understand it. It's weird, even though I don't understand yeah. Māori that well, but but with English, I still struggle, so I have to come to these classes <laughs> to understand. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. And it's just trying to try and understand these things. So this is nothing to say, hey, we got dodgy or bad versions of the Bible. And I said the underlying Greek and Hebrew translations are really, really accurate. There's nothing in the world that compares to what we have in the Bible in terms of um, manuscript evidence. It's just finding a way that, one that suits us. And knowing sometimes you want to research a bit more than just look at, a, at another translation. But sometimes, as Lana said, sometimes it's easier picking it up in, a, in another language. Sometimes it, it's, it's helpful too. It's just a different, different way. So um, we might come back to, we'll come back, obviously we'll pick up the kingdom of God again next time round. I mean, that's a really, again, that snapshot of just going through um, the gospel times. Um, and so this whole message, Jesus now come to show what the kingdom of God looks like. But it's not fulfilled yet, is it, in its fullness? There's more to come. And so uh, we're going to be picking up this theme of the kingdom of God again. But I just like that picture of the marriage is that it gives us an idea of where we're heading, where God's heading, where God's taking us, and that gives us confidence. So um, we'll close there. Thank you for your time tonight. I hope that's been helpful. And I want someone like to close in prayer. Anyone like to close in prayer? Tom? Hmm. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again for, for the time we can have uh, here. And um, yeah, it's always really encouraging to to open the word and to look deeper and um, and to do that with other people and hear just different perspectives. <clears throat> and Father, we are we are so thankful that you sent your Son, um, yeah, and and that to, to be our propitiation that we can have relationship with you um, and, and not fear the uh, your wrath and, and and the fact that we have Christ in our lives and. Um, yeah, Lord, it is, it is such a, a privilege, and, and we just pray that each day um, you would reveal again to us 
uh, your character, Lord, and, and remind us who we are. And <clears throat> may that be our desire as well, to dig deeper into the Word and, and understand who we are uh, in you. <clears throat> Father, just, um, thank you for Richard and uh, just his, his great teaching and his desire to, to teach and to, and, to, um, and to lead us, Father. And I just pray a blessing upon him. I ask that you would bless him and Julie and, uh, and their family, Father, and um, Lord, we're, just, yeah, we're so grateful to have him uh, just just share the things that you've, you've uh, taught to him over these years, Lord. Father, as each of us go from here into, into our work, into our lives, into our families, Father, we just pray you go before us and prepare the way. And uh, we ask that you give us opportunities to, um, to show the love that you have given to us, Father, and to, and to those lives around about us. And uh, Father, we want to see your name glorified. And um, so, Father, we, we just uh, ask that you would come and uh, work in our lives. We surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.